broadcasting from a bright light in a binary star system on the edge of Federation space. This is Politrix. The Prime Directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ, Calus the Unforgettable. Welcome, everyone, to Politrex, the proud member of the Trek Geeks Network. And here on Politrex, we look at the socio-political happenings of today in history through the episodes, movies, and philosophy of Trek. We have the light of Kalish inside of us. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me is my fantastic co-host, the often imitated, never replicated Mr. Shankavaru. How are things, Yodni? Namaste, homo sapiens. I'm great. It's interesting that you say the light of Kalish. Because it's the graphic novel that I've been reading in my preparation for all my STLV fanboying. For those of you not in the know, The Light of Kalis is one of the two comic book arcs that came out since Star Trek Discovery started. It's it's a beautiful, one of the coolest, most visually pleasing books I've ever read in the realm of Star Trek. It's this, it's this backstory of Takuvma and it starts at his birth and goes till the first moment we see him in the speech at the beginning of Discovery. So just, yeah, if you haven't read that, guys, you should pick that up. The Night of Kalis by Mike Johnson, Kirsten Bayer, and Tony Shasteen. But I am good, my friend. How are you? I am very good. Um, you know, with the fact that uh, we are here just a week before we're going to be at STLV. And when you folks get this, you will uh, know that we will be in Vegas when this releases. So at this point, Shashank and I are easily sipping jippers on a beach, um, a Vegas beach, though. But either way, uh, I'm great. I'm looking forward to things. I'm getting some home home improvement stuff done, as I, I tend to before I go to STLV now, it seems. It's become a it's become a bit of a ritual. So, yeah, I'm I'm super great. I'm super excited. So are you familiar with what long play videos are? Like an LP? Kind of. Like, I, know, I know LP and EP, like long play and extended play for, like, albums. Uh, so long play videos on, like, on the internets are these videos where people just play an entire game from beginning to end and they just put it online so if you are like someone who enjoys watching movies but you also enjoy watching video games played from beginning to end right these are by pros who play it from beginning to end they put it on youtube but i'm i'm down this weird rabbit hole of star trek video games that came out in the 90s and there is there are so many like if you go to youtube and you type pc or just long play star trek there are so many games. And the interesting part is almost all of them have all the original cast. Like there's a Deep Space Nine game called, I believe, Star Trek Harbinger. Hmm. And it's a four-hour game. And it has all the cast, everybody from Avery Brooks to Armin Shimmerman, just everybody's in there. And it's just like the... And there is a game called Star Trek Borg in which Q becomes one of the Borg. And there is a game called Star Trek Klingon, in which you are a Klingon and you have to do all these rituals as a Klingon. So it's just, there was a, I feel like nobody told me about this. And now that I've found it, I can't stop watching. Hmm. But they're a lot of fun. That sounds cool. I might have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool, man. It's just fun to watch all the cast people outside of the episodes that we know and love them for. 
that's actually probably one of the bigger reasons why I like Star Trek in general is is the people who make Star Trek a thing are are, are just so incredibly active and they, they take a personal role. It's pretty common, actually. So, well, I think uh, we've got a pretty interesting conversation coming up today where we'll be talking about season one of Star Trek Discovery and the politrex of it. So this isn't going to be a review. Uh, this is going to be we're going to we're going to pull out some of the internal politics and f- philosophical ideas, how everything kind of rolled out in terms of what messages were, were being pushed by the entire season in general. And then also I want to talk a little bit about the real world, kind of almost oblique to to the meaning of Star Trek Discovery, but more the idea that, that Star Trek Discovery in and of itself represents the new streaming culture and how that works in relation to other streamed shows. And I would say probably started with kind of the HBO style, uh, these long season Breaking Bad style um, television shows. So I don't know. Is there anything that, that you're really wanting to talk about that way, Shashank? Well, everybody knows I'm a big fan of not just the Star Trek stuff within a Star Trek show, but all the non-Star Trek stuff that does not particularly pertain to Starfleet and as humans, because there are so many shows already about humans. I'm a huge fan of the Klingons in the show, so I want to talk about some of their cultural touchstones. I want to talk about people like Mud on that show and just talk about that damn Lorca. And how he tricked us all. He's the Loki of Star Trek. Ooh, I like that. I would say he's the Malfoy of Star Trek, but that works too. Ah, you sly bastard. That's me. (laughs) Well, let's get on to the news. What do you say? Let's do it. Go. You're still here. That's awesome. Thanks for sticking around and jumping in with us to the news of it all on this episode. We don't have a huge amount of news to discuss. Just just like an FYI, kids are still in cages, so that's happening. And the planet is burning down, so that's also happening. But on to happier things. Uh, just we're, we're all blessed to have Star Trek and the chance to talk and celebrate Star Trek and fanboy all about Star Trek on this new network that we are a part of here in Trek Geeks and Bill and Dan, who are our fearless leaders. If you're listening, I know you guys are doing a quality check. Just so you know, it's all going to be downhill from here. They're not listening, Shashan. <laughs> if they listened this far in, well, if Bill listened this far in, he'd be falling asleep. Dan would have already had a seizure probably probably five minutes ago. So... Yeah, I think I think I think let's start to actually I'm I'm reversing the order on you. One news item that I that I wanted to bring up and that we shared uh, a month ago before the move was in regards to the Brazilian anti-corruption uh prosecutor. Turns out that under Bolsonaro, the prosecution for anti-corruption in Brazil, uh they they basically look at making sure that all of the political things that are being done all of the corporate things that are being done are uh, above board well it turns out that the the head dude his name is uh, Deltan uh Dalagnol uh, he was uh, found to be taking money uh, <laughs> from companies that he was investigating and that there is also internal papers and knowledge that they're 
assisting in trying to destabilize Venezuela's economy, which is a country obviously to the north of Brazil. So it is a very frustrating and very telling piece of what a proto-fascist government will get up to when given the impunity to do it. And in this case, I just feel very much like Galdicott is in is in control of Brazil, and I wonder if anyone is specifically surprised that he is currently trying to disrupt a country next door that is in crisis. I mean, would we put this past any Gauls, actually? I mean, even early Damar probably would have gone up to this before he had his touch of goodness. So imagine we are on the crew of the Enterprise, right? And troubles and tribbles happen, and we're just completely drenched in tribbles. So when it's one tribble, without knowing what tribbles actually do to us, you kind of don't know what exactly they are, but you think they're adorable, they're cute. But when there are so many tribbles that you do not have the mind to process them, that's kind of where we are. Except the tribbles are not cute. The tribbles are just racism and They're fascists. (laughs) They're a bunch of fascists. Earth is plagued with fascist tribbles. Oh my gosh. And tyrants and dictators. That's just where we are right now. And Kirk has opened the hatch door and they've just all fallen on us. And they are not stopping the multiplication. So that's kind of where we are. To be honest, as a third world citizen, I am not surprised that an anti-corruption group is corrupt. This is just on par for the courts for countries like ours where, you know, when when you're fighting for basic necessities like water and food and clean air and no diseases... You you kind of do not have the time, the energy, or the infrastructure to be on top of things like you would ideally in a country like the United States or some countries in Europe. But I can't say that for the U.S. anymore. Maybe I could say that for Canada. I'll let you jump in on that. But uh, it's just no. that's what like that's it's just you know it's just all trivials and they're not cute. They're just multiplying. They're mirror tribbles. They're those ones with the teeth. And it's just, we, we just, we don't know what to do anymore. Yeah, I guess, I guess more than anything, check out, I'm going to actually repost this when, uh, when it does come out, because I do think there is so much to this. And I mean, there are banks involved, uh, Itau, Santander and Deutsche Bank are, are implicated if, just being engaged with this uh, this guy, and it, it's crazy that that it's just happening openly at this point. There's no, there's nothing to stop any of this from going on. And and you know, you're talking about Canada. I mean, Canada's exploited Brazil economically in the past. It's that sort of thing where they've elected in through corruption and whatnot. The government that would be most amicable to continued exploitation of the country and its people and yeah you saying you know from being from india yeah it's the same idea right when when your country tried to emancipate itself and become a free country of its own the first reaction of the colonial powers was to kill you all so if that gives you any idea of who benefits from this terrible terrible act that's happening in brazil ongoing continuously i mean it's the it's the people of Brazil itself who are bearing the burden of this. And we can look at this mouths agape, but I mean, sometimes you've got to, sometimes you've got to stand up to the Cardassians, right? Sometimes you've got to, you've got to show them that you're not going to just take this lying down. And so for us, you know, I mean, 
over here in this comfortable place where we are. I mean, get involved any way you can. I mean, Amnesty International even is a, is a good place to start for political prisoners around the world. I mean, it's hard to do anti-corruption work more than just you know internet act activism but you can support causes that try to push against this so look them up and we of course do not have any silver line to that except you know it's good that people are looking at it and i'm glad people found out that it's corrupt so yeah call it for what it is what yeah whatever small steps that they can take to make things better you know progress is always two steps forward one step back so Whatever they can do. And sometimes 10 years can happen and nothing will occur. And then sometimes in one year, it'll feel like a decade has passed. Well, speaking of time passing, um, this was a month ago, but I just don't feel right as a Star Trek fan and a Star Trek podcaster to not mention my regrets and condolences for the loss of Mr. Peter Allen Fields. Um, I just want to just say to everyone that I count myself among the collective grief in all of this and without him we wouldn't have beautiful shows his part was played in half a life cost of living the inner light he was in integral in deep space nine i mean we talk about in the pale moonlight and we talk about for the uniform we talk about duet and the circle um like openly like these are some of the best best episodes of trek and he had an integral part in all of those episodes and even more outside of that he was also really good at at bringing out to xena warrior princess and um, knight rider and the man from uncle so he was a guy with an amazing brain and an amazing heart because of what he could write the 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 big the big things that he wrestled with in his work producing and writing for uh, for so many good shows including the ones we love so just uh, farewell mr mr fields you're an amazing human being it's unfortunate and it, these are just things that we've come to accept and honestly that's part of being so loyal and so loving and fans of an, a franchise that is 53 years old at this point that you know you have people that pass on but the good thing is that they leave a really big glaring legacy for us to learn and make light of and celebrate which i think is a is a great privilege speaking of which you know we will be talking about a show that kind of gets its flack for legacy but also celebrates the legacy it belongs to and uh, while I'm sad about Mr. Fields passing, I'm excited that there is a new Star Trek that I can talk about. Right. A lot, yeah, a lot that borrows from people like Mr. Fields who set up these plot points and these touchstones that we continue in Discovery and Picard and beyond. So I'm excited to talk future Trek, man. Yeah, and, and that is, you're absolutely right, because Discovery is part of um, Peter Allen Fields' legacy. You know, that there is definite points they're taking from deep space nine to make discovery go so no you're you're absolutely right well i think with that we should get on to our main topic what about you let's do it They are coming, atom by atom. They will coil around us and take all that we are 
there is one way to confront this threat. By reuniting the 24 warring houses of our own empire, we have forgotten the unforgettable. The last to unify our tribes. Kalesh. Together, under one creed. Remain Klingon. The first statement made in this series of Star Trek were not in English. They were in Klingon. I think that is a very interesting and in and of itself subversive way to reignite Star Trek on television. Shashank, where were you and what were you doing? Who, who were you with when you saw season one of Star Trek Discovery? I believe I was beginning to talk about this podcast about space and politics and Star Trek with some nerd in Canada. And we, uh, I said, hey, I'm going to wait till I catch up with this because I don't know if you remember, there was a winter finale and then there was a break yeah. or a fall finale and a break. And then they jumped back in spring. So I was like, I'm going to wait till the fall finale and then watch the whole thing. So that is where I was. I had heard rumblings about how good the show was. I was, of course, following up with all the reviews and both the good and the bad of being part of this fandom is everybody's opinionated. Everybody has that say that they want to get in. So I kind of got to the controversy before the actual plot of the show. But when I got to catch up, I was like, I, I don't see what the controversy is about. And for you completionists listening to this episode today, we will give a review. But the fact that we're discussing it on an entire episode should tell you that we liked it. And we're trying to bring positivity in the world. So I don't know how cruel we are. And if we are cruel enough to just talk about an entire episode's worth of something that we hate or we dislike. So yeah, I mean, my short review is that Discovery Season 1 is awesome. Yeah, and I would say that that Discovery Season 1 is a hard act to start. And I liked it. I enjoyed the whole thing completely. I found it to be enjoyable. I've watched it more than once. I mean, I think I, I think anyone who would say that it wasn't exactly what they wanted or it was something they hated, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of over all of the, the conversation about it. I'm at this point I'm just happy to to talk more Trek, as you'd mentioned in the news segment. So I think maybe if we wanna kind of roll this into a sort of a, a followable thing. We're going to start with Takuvma's speech. We're going to chat about his, you know, sort of how he how he integrates a lot of um, Klingon lore and a lot of sort of a type of nationalism. I think is the best way to put that because I want to talk a bit about that. Hey, before we do that, can can we just like can I just throw out a couple of things just to get your answers on them? Yeah, sure. Uh, before we get into like the plot elements, okay. which I'm very excited to discuss. <laughs> I'm just, I just see this meal, Shashank. It's this beautiful yeah, meal of ideas. And I know. I, I'm just and grabbing with my, my steely knife and I just can't kill the beast. I, I want it now. So go for it. What do you got? I was That was an interesting thing that you just said. And honestly, I kind of thought you were much more positive to the first season. But now I now that I think about it, I remember you saying something about, you know, I don't know if this wasn't, this was really as awesome as I thought it was going to be. So I get that, but answer this. I'm going to make a bold flame okay. and tell me if you agree or disagree. Is season one of Discovery the best season one of any Star Trek show? No. TOS. Okay. TOS 100%. Uh, what about after TOS? Well, uh, I would say yes. Then. So that that's, I mean, you're at least... You just kind of get that it's okay to rank it a little higher than where it is. Like, it, you were not 
you didn't you didn't completely dislike it. No, 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 not at all, yeah. sir. I'm I'm just kind of keeping that kind of leveled critique, right? Like, it's uh, it's easy to be a gatekeeper, but I think it's also it it takes a certain level of cognitive dissonance to completely love or completely hate uh, a television series. And honestly, being part of this, I'm not saying we're popular, or I'm not saying like we're so important to the world of Trek that this is a burden that I'm bearing like Hercules or Atlas, but being part of this this network of people who kind of have a bit of a following and people who enjoy our thoughts and people who care enough to interact with us just going back to what you're talking about you know all the negativity that we deal with you're right some like i wish in in some ways all i could just think about was just how good this is and just enjoy that instead of worrying about the human aspect of everything that comes into the fandom and kind of suffocates it and the what is good about discovery and just Star Trek in general kind of goes off to the sideline some days. But yeah, let's get into it. You're right. Uh, going back to Tukuvma though, what do you think of Tukuvma as a villain? I would love to get your thoughts on that. Underutilized, right? He could have he could have been in more. But I mean, I guess his his time frame was was the same as Georgiou's, right? He is sort of like the mirror. Uh, before she had a mirror self of of Georgiou. he he was a unifier he was someone who you know everyone seemed to look up to right even Cole when when Takuma is is giving his speech he still you know like Cole tries to reprimand him and it just rolls off Takuma's back right he continues this this long conversation about unity and honor and what is pushing him forward so i think he's very idyllic i think he's he kind of comes across to me as a number of foreign people who inspired groups of people in their own country often colonialized countries right so i'm going to lump people together who maybe some people might take offense to but i'm just going to say that violently or non-violently all of these people influenced enough people to make a big big change the first one of course is osama bin laden right the idea that that osama bin laden would would use a common enemy to push for a uh, you know a, a protracted war against a larger group of people the other one i would say would be mahatma gandhi right the idea that gandhi was able to use simple language and you know he he came from he came from a humble a humble demeanor right and i think there's a lot of humility and sort of reverence to to takuma and finally i would say you know he's kind of coming off a bit like ho chi minh in the sense that he has this practiced understanding of what it means to be a certain group and that that those groups within that larger group have to work together. Now, Ho Chi Minh and Gandhi, I think, were, were fighting for a noble nationalistic cause. Uh, I think Osama bin Laden was deluded and crazy, but at the same time, they all seem to have little bits of Takuvma in them. I would also say that that he he sort of comes off as like one of those people who, who maybe un, unwarrantedly get popular and start movements that are just just look violent from the start of it. So I'm thinking of like Mosley in London during the rise of fascism in the 1930s. So yeah, is is that helpful? Absolutely. And uh, there, there's a lot there that I agree with. I, uh, You're absolutely right. Also about Gandhi, especially because uh, what people often forget is yes, Gandhi was nonviolent, 
but there was an immediacy that he never shied away from. He was like, this is non-violent and we shouldn't hurt people, but this needs to happen now. Yeah. Like now is the moment, there is no more time left. And that is kind of what Takuma pushes. So just going back to the underutilization though, I just, I'm not trying to write a better show. I love Discovery season one. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it. I will defend it to the end of my days. I, I love talking about it any chance I get, but how much better would it have been had Takuma been the villain of all of season one, right? If you just think about, and again, I love Mary Chifo, but if you do not have Mary Chifo's character, but instead you have Takuma there playing her role, how much better would it be if at the end of the Battle of the Binary Stars, you actually captured Takuma and through trickery he gets out, and then everything that happens with Mary Chifo's character actually happens with Takuvma. And he, uh, Voke makes the deal with Takuvma about getting genetically restructured. And then it's this, this prophet that, and his disciple relationship over the discovery because Tyler is supposed to hate him, but Tyler is, is Voke who is supposed to love and be blindly loyal to Takuvma who's talking to him from the jail cell trying to control everything. Like just uh, just thinking about that brings up so many ideas in my head because you know people like Hitler were able to do things from, from jail. Like Hitler wrote Mein Kampf in jail. Yeah. And uh, religious leaders often use imprisonment as a way to morally stand up and they say, oh, they don't get us. They're afraid of us. Just, I don't know, man. Maybe I'm just, I'm just throwing ideas out no, there. You've, you've come up with a good point, and I think that might be sort of one of the central constructive critiques I have of Star Trek Discovery. I think in this case, the Klingons are the the natural villain. And I don't, I mean, we're never going to know what the original plan for, for Star Trek Discovery was and, and how it changes producers quite quickly. And as I'd mentioned, I think uh, a little while earlier that you see so many different producers on that show that you can see that they're, they're trying to cobble stuff together as well. I think there was an overarching idea, but there were some holes and they had to fill those. So I would say like the death of Takuvma, it, it, it shatters the empire, right? It's, it's just as they get unified. And I think as a writing choice, maybe it would be good because otherwise under this one unified leader, I think the, the UFP would have fallen incredibly quickly, would have just been pummeled by, by Takuma's forces and his, you know, his, his uh, cloakable ships and whatnot. So, you know, it goes to Cole, the whole, the whole command structure breaks down to Cole because he's, you know, advantage, he takes that advantage. And I would say that Takuma's persona as it, as it exists sort of diverges with Cole on one side and um, Lorel on the other in the sense that, that Lorel has these relational abilities that, that Takuvma clearly has, right? When you see how, how Cole is upset that Voke is hanging out because he's this albino outcast and Takuvma is like, no, I, I, I accept everyone and, and especially the people who you've discarded because, because they are still bound by this, this idea of remaining Klingon. And so, you see this relational aspect of what Takuma was in uh, Laurel, and you see the conquering, the warrior, the fighter, the ne the necessary element of what it is to be Klingon in Cole. The problem is, is he's tinged by deceit, and the problem with Laurel is she's like bent by her love obligations and and the implications of what she's done to Voke. 
So, yeah, I wish they would have centralized that figure a lot more because they they split them in half before we could really get to know what they were doing with Cole and Laurel. Because I think if they had kind of drawn that out a bit more, we would have understood that that's what they were doing. And honestly, it was it would have been so much cooler if uh, like I get what you're saying, but I kind of think you can also have your cake and eat it too in the situation by not killing Tukovma, but like I said, put him in a jail cell on the discovery and have the same discussions he's having between uh, Laurel and Tyler, make that more or less be between Tukovma and Tyler. And you see the fallout that happens from a, relig- a religious cult of personality leaving a Klingon house like that. And it would have been so much cooler if they went into the mirrored universe, right? And in the mirrored universe, you actually find uh, that more or less the Klingons are our allies. So if where the if where Vogue is in the mirrored universe, imagine if Takuma was there and Takuma and Michael team up and they actually find a way to fight the mirrored universe. And then Takuma actually helps in the mirrored universe, my, helps Michael find a way out of this mess because he says, you know, I feel like my people have lost their way and it's this is how you can defeat them when you go back. And like, I just, it's like the mind just starts flowing, you know, it's just, there is so much, there is so much ripe fruit there. Yeah. And I think it all stems from the fact that we just love Takuma so much and he's such a powerful character. One really important element for me for Takuma is this, is this ideology he uses where and it's pretty prevalent now. I don't have to say names, but when we say these things, people will know where he's using culture as people's identity. He's he's never talking about things like Klingon science or Klingon medicine or the advancements that they're making in space travel. He does not care or he doesn't think those are necessary enough to be talked about. All that he wants to do is talk about protection of culture. Yeah. And he's he's limiting people's idea to their culture. He's saying this is who we are and all we are is Klingon. And that is kind of on a level true and on a level not true. If all I was was Hindu, I would just stay back home in a small village in India and live in a temple and become a priest because I'm a Hindu Brahmin and that's what Brahmins are supposed to do. I would have never come out to the world, experience everything around here and had that side of my my human psyche fulfilled. But he's very much focused on, in that way, he's like religious leaders, like cult leaders that had their heyday and everybody knows about religious wars but he kind of reminds me of that too you do you feel that at all he does have a that that religious element and that's kind of why i add uh in my my sort of influential people i have both osama bin laden and and gandhi in the sense that both of them cleaved to their understanding of the religion they were a part of, right? I mean, there's different types of Hinduism. And I mean, Gandhi himself was killed by Hindu extremists who didn't think that Gandhi was Hindu enough. So, I mean, that gives you an idea, right? And and of course, Osama bin Laden preaches a, a idea of Islam, which from what I understand from my, my friends who are, um, who are Muslim, it flies in the face of everything that they, that they stand for. So, in that respect, you're right. He he's using it, but he's also using it at, at a specific angle, and I think that's kind of an important distinction to make, not only as a religious leader, but also, you know, his his claim of having the light of Kalish, and the idea that 
he himself is connected to their god in in some way, shape, or form. I think that's also really important. And I think that's where we can make a distinction. And, and what I like to always compare the Klingons to is the Japanese culture, right? The the feudal Japanese samurai class. And they are they're a fascist class, right? I mean, it's a fascistic class, I guess is a better way of putting it. Is in that, you know, it's it's this it you know, strength through military might. It is honor above everything else. But, you know, I mean, it's honor, you know, with an elbow nudge kind of thing, which was a very characteristic of the samurai. Um, this idea of, of hyper sort of macho behavior and stuff like that. And you sort of see how if the Klingons themselves were being subjugated by the UFP and Takuvma makes a speech even close to this, you know, we would see him much more as a hero, right? Like when the Chinese are fighting against Chiang Kai-shek and the Japanese um, invasion, they engage in protracted people's war, not because they want to remain Chinese, it's because they have a class consciousness and they want to liberate their class from the ruling class. Whereas in Japan, their whole understanding and their whole actions was what made them an empire, right? They saw the idea of remaining Japanese not as a class thing. They accepted the classes that their that their society built in and of itself. And they saw that America as a threat must be destroyed because it is another competitor against its interests. But it comes off, right, when Japan is going to Korea, when it's going to China, when it's in Burma and, and the Philippines, it's actually stating of itself that it's a liberator. And I would say in that respect, again, the, this Klingon empire and Kuvma, he is sort of like a more charismatic Hirohito, I would say. Now that we've spent uh, two hours on Takuvma, <laughs> uh, he's fascinating he's a very yeah, fascinating is, character and uh, i'm glad we both have the same fundamental gripe and that is that they just did not use him enough yeah but but i mean before before we go ahead here like talking about takuvma really underscores exactly what you need to be looking at when you see these Klingons, right? They've got the the kind of belligerence of the TOS Klingon, but they have really taken on that creation of of Klingon that that, that comes out of TNG and Deep Space Nine. Yeah, they almost have this Cylon, like Battlestar Galactica Cylon, like cold-blooded, calculative efficiency where they're like, we're just going to go one star base to another we're not going to there is honor in certain things but that is not what's important right now and that's why when they come back from the mirror universe they find that they've started destroying star bases right. and they've been killing eighty thousand people at once so it's just yeah definitely a lot of fascinating stuff there but uh speaking of takuva and the end of that journey at the battle of the binary stars what do you think of burnham's mutiny i think that again what we have is i like to call reverse wharf Right. Uh, Burnham very much takes takes on sort of how Michael Doran's characterization of Worf, where he tried to be more Klingon than Klingon in a lot of cases. It's that tension that that Burnham has. And, and maybe she's all, you know, obviously, sorry, obviously, she's a reverse Spock as well, in the sense that Spock was Vulcan and was grappling with his human human nature, his human side. She's human. And she's grappling with her adopted Vulcan nature. And I think that's important. So I think to her, her mutiny was justified. And I don't really even know, like, how much regret does she really show for it in the end, right? Like, she sort of accepts her fate and stuff. And I think she wishes Georgia hadn't have died. But I think 
her coming to terms with her mutiny on on that ship is more of an internal journey in a lot of cases where I think it was justified in the sense that it needed to happen for her growth as a Starfleet officer. It's a, I mean, the whole ordeal is really complicated. It's, it definitely is layered and brings out a bunch of things that uh, uh, there are such beautiful flaws within the character of Burnham. It's it's almost ironic that uh, the first season deals with an identity war about what is Starfleet and what is being Klingon. And at the core of it, you have a character that does not have a full grasp of her identity. Is she Vulcan? Is she human? Is she Starfleet even? And... Because she's Starfleet, does that mean that everybody accepts that she's Starfleet because she made this mistake? Is there forgiveness? Like, it's just so many layers in that. But I I don't know, man. I often think about Burnham's mutiny as a necessary sin. It's like, it's just something that, and this is just the worst way to think about the whole thing when I say it in these terms, but it's, it's an evil that you needed to do for the greater good, right? Like, I... I don't know what else could have happened in that situation that would have made anything any better. It's it's just sad that that's the story that we have for for Burnham and that's the that's our central character. But that's what makes it so interesting. The whole series is Michael Burnham crawling out of her own head. Yeah. I think in a lot of cases, right? Like she opens up to to someone who who betrays them. Her her mother figure has has left her and and her other mother fig- figure of amanda is is both uh, in terms of you know distance spatially but also temporally you know is is a lot further away from her so i think that yeah i think her mutiny was necessarily justified in the sense that she needed to mutiny and i i'm not going to hold her responsible for georgie's death because i honestly think that um Takuvan was going to attack anyway Right. And it was more convenient for him for for things to happen the way they did. But I honestly think that they were going to get a bloody nose one way or another. So if we just look at that scene in and of itself, the arc that that Michael Burnham goes on is very much that that hero's journey in a lot of cases where, you know, she she ends up in the underworld and you know, gets gets this call to action and stuff like that in um in a very sort of visceral sense. And watching your, you know, quote unquote master get destroyed, I mean that's the hallmark of of many of like Hong Kong cinema and stuff like that. And and I think to some degree she gets her revenge and then when she sees that mutated version of of her mother figure, that's another area where she needs to understand that it's her own identity that she's creating. She's not emulating anybody else. And it's a neat way of showing that that Georgiou isn't incorruptible because in this universe, though it's so easy to be corrupted, I mean, there are those who are not. And Georgiou has fallen prey to that corruption so much so that she's running the show. So I think that's a sort of a, of the liminal and the subliminal, um, there's a lot to to her story, but in terms of her mutiny, yeah, it had to happen. And I know the the core question is whether it was justified, but I think that the answer to that lies in what you think of Burnham as a character. To me, as a protagonist, she's almost as interesting as Cisco, because Cisco had some of the many qualities that Burnham has, at least at the beginning of the show as things take us past the pilot, because they're both trying to move on from this 
immense unspeakable tragedy of course they have different journeys to get there but you you see that in in a lot of ways Cisco never quite gets over his tragedy and it kind of defines he he finds honor and grace and this dignity in the way he deals with the tragedy and then he's thrust with this superhuman responsibility and burnham is also kind of thrust into crisis by design by an an evil person masquerading as a good person and it's just there is a there's a lot to mine from there but again how you feel about burnham's journey uh, kind of i think answers the question about whether her mutiny was justified or not what what is more interesting to me is why would starfleet as an organization not see that and uh, not recognize the extraordinary circumstances under which burnham had to do what she did like if you have uh, infrastructure in space in the middle of nowhere where somebody can come in and say i want to take this human away to be broken and inspected and then a captain can immediately jump in and say no no this is human this is not an android or a robot he's still a person capable of making his own choice when I mean, you can have such an infrastructure i don't know why starfleet's immediate reaction was oh yeah she needs to go to jail i would say it's because she broke the chain of command right and and if if star trek is of course a a sort of a reflection onto modern day society you know think about this on several occasions there have been calls for for the launching of nuclear weapons during the cold war between both the united states and uh, the ussr and there are there are documented cases where a false alarm has gone off or something with a lot more authority or at least you know enough to convince authorities to to act it's uh, it's been either you know it's either been chosen to do or not to do it, relevant to it right i mean vasily arkhipov the soviet submarine captain who was at the cuban missile crisis was given the okay to launch uh, a nuclear strike because his his uh, submarine was getting hit by depth charges he decided not to and that's an interesting choice so he he broke the chain of command i don't know what happened to him um to be honest but um I'm 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 sure he might have re- he might have gotten some form of reprimand by his higher ups for not doing it. But at the same time, in a situation so incredibly tense, you know, we have to if we if we exist in those chains of command, we have to honor that. I mean, that's a a lot of training and indoctrination actually that that Burnham was able to overcome. And I think that's an interesting element of her character is that she is capable of transcending these deeper logical rules that exist within within her because her choice though she thought it was logical i think was extremely illogical and really highlighted her humanness and i think it's only really after ds9 that star trek boldly went in the direction of finding these characters who can be defined by tragedy because if you even look at her entire arc in season 1 or in many plot threads like she loses her mother figure like i said she falls in love with a person who is arguably like with or without his own willingness one of the most evil people on the ship and completely not in control of himself and she cannot bring herself to accept that so she continues to love him anyway and not you know do what's needed to distance herself from him and she she's almost forced to there are, you know how there are these people who are like these eternal fools with a capital f like the hunchback of notre dame characters who just 
have this almost biological attraction to uh, finding tragedy and just finding suffering like everything that happens to her the captain that chooses her turns out to be evil she falls in love with someone who does who has just this fundamental evil within him and is a murderer and she, she the the one person that she can connect to she cannot connect to because falcons do not have emotions so sarah cannot connect to her the way she and she says that as much she's like i know there are things he wants from me that he cannot get and it wasn't until now that i realized that it's the same for me too that she can also not get what she wants from him as a father and i'm sure we'll do a season 2 episode but you think things would get better for her in season 2 and in some ways they do but in some ways they get worse so it's just it's uh, i i just you know more than anything i hope the suffering stops for burnham someday yeah the uh, she she it, it's funny how you know you've talked about her her connection to to Cisco sort of facing that initial tragedy um i think she's also marked by her her pain right and and that that reminds me a lot of picard um she she's very forthright and very very self self assured in her actions when they have to happen she she does take time to question her herself and she is very reflective much like Janeway um you know i i don't see as she had that kind of kirkesque swagger at the start but that i think she ate some crow pretty fast but i think you know when when you're when you're talking about people who she connects with and uh on on the show and losing those people as early as she did it is it it, it the funny part is this is shows called discovery and 100% i think she, <laughs> she she discovers herself in this right at the end that speech wasn't some like hooray for starfleet speech in a lot of cases that speech at the end that that she gives now this series begins and ends with a speech and and they're both about identity yeah and they're both about defining an identity one of them is we are klingon one of them is we are starfleet Exactly. And so I think I think if it, you know that that is and and you think about it like it's remain Klingon, right? And we are Starfleet, right? Yeah. These these two verbs are are very particular, right? They they you know linguistically you can control your your thought by your language, but also realize that language can control your thought. This is a very important kind of bookend to the entire series and if we philosophically want to look at this this is this is a person figuring out who they are and in in, a, in that is in an emotional and personal sense right uh, invoke it is we figure out he figures out who he is and so inside of Burnham she is united with herself in the end and in a lot of cases uh Voke and ash are very much divided within themselves by the end of this it's sort of a neat kind of reverse crescendo that they go through and they kind of meet in the middle as those star-crossed lovers and i think i think they're forever going to play that dance throughout this series i think i think he's going to kind of be like the angel to to burnham's buffy and it's it's also very interesting that you point out those poetic elements within the speech but if you think about it on a larger scale a lot about discovery at least season 1 is characters discovering who they are if you look at tilly's arc if you look at uh, vox's arc if you look at michael's arc in the case of lorca it's everybody else discovering who he is mm-hmm. uh, like it's the if, if you think about characters like uh, stamets it's like discovering what relationships are and what it means to be in a relationship and just there is so much again there is so much discovery in discovery which is like a dumb thing to say <laughs> and 
but no, you're, you're absolutely right. Now, speaking of stamets, I do want to talk about this because I think it's a very interesting plot element. Uh, what do you think of the mycelial network in general? What do you think it represents? Yeah, just give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's nuclear technology in a lot of cases. It's it's our extractive resource uh, utilization that that we do, right? You know, it's 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 hydrocarbons in a lot of cases. It's another shot at when they try to make a speed limit to warp speed, and. I think, again, it's sort of that departure. I think it was a, a convenient thing that was necessary for the plot in a lot of cases. And it is becoming a bit of a, I don't know, it's a sort of a vestigial feature that the Discovery now kind of has that they use from time to time. But ultimately, no, the mycelial network is the impacts of convenience, I think, in a lot of cases, right? It, to get it, people are going to have to die. And to maintain it, it's going to do damage to a lot of things, right? It's it's us going forward. It's Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park saying, we're so busy trying to see whether or not we could, we don't stop to think of whether or not we should. And I think that's an important way of looking at the mycelial network of sort of the hubris of advancement and, and how we can be very much like Icarus getting too close to the sun and ultimately burning ourselves through through what we do you know it, it's the the other part of it is notice how quickly this this way of tr- transporting ourselves so quickly gets weaponized right it's it's crazy that that we're using something that could be so benign much like nuclear power but immediately like hey you could probably uh, you could probably get to battles really fast and like you know teleport yourself all over the place and win win battles really really quickly and the same idea of nuclear power giving us a relatively sustainable energy source that as long as it's maintained has a very low impact on the environment however if things go wrong uh, it's pretty much the opposite the first thing I thought of like was nuclear technology but the more I thought about it and the more I went back and saw some of those scenes especially with the tardigrade I, it kind of reminds me of the animal cruelty arguments and just the way we treat animals in general or all non-human creatures on earth just in, there is just, there's almost like this accepted indifference to certain species of animals like nobody thinks about or I wouldn't say nobody, like a lot of people, the majority of the planet doesn't think about animals that we eat every day, like pigs and cows and chickens in general, which is the most eaten animal on the planet. And and yet there is immediately an accepted empathy or a need to provide and take care of dogs. Yeah. So it's, it's like people don't accept the tardigrade on the show when it shows up. Interestingly enough, the one person that keeps talking about how you know, is that in Malcolm character who's like, you know, we should maybe shouldn't do this is the character who does not have any right to speak up or does not have the power to have her opinion heard. I do think if Georgiou was on that ship, she would have probably said something and maybe she wouldn't have. Yeah. And she would not have She would at least found a more humane or again, it's just, those are just degrees of like, like, I don't. When people say, oh, this was humanely raised, so I'm eating it. I don't know what that means. You still killed it. I was just going to say, like, basically what that implies to me is Starfleet is still a society, like the society of the military organization of Starfleet uh, could still harbor sociopaths quite easily. And it's because, you know, they they have to torture an animal 
to do that, right? And it's sort of like that train track analogy, where if you're pulling the lever to kill this person to save others or whatever, you know, it's that kind of moral conundrum, right? Where I'm harming this animal for the convenience and, you know, in this case, you know, to win a war, but it's a very convenient way to do it you can separate yourself that it's for this quote unquote greater good. And then also, you know, let's say you're, you're just a, a maintenance worker on, you know, the nacelles of the discovery. You, you would be able to sort of foreclose a lot of your personal culpability with the issue. Right. And then, yeah, you're right. Someone like George, you might say something and that's probably why they're not telling her is because the people who are directly involved tend to be put into it with some kind of stake, right? Like, oh, hey, I'm an engineer on the Discovery, and it was my commission, and if I say something, then I'm going to lose my commission, so I'm not going to allow that to happen. It's those sorts of things where, if anything, what should have happened is is when Stamets and his colleague find more information about the mycelial network and they they start to understand i mean like later they realize they're like basically like clear-cutting whole portions of the mycelia as they're passing through that network to get to their other location but i mean even before that when when stamets's colleague is literally torturing that tardigrade to get where they need to go that that in and of itself should tell us that maybe this is wrong and that we should take this to committee. We should we should see if if this is morally justifiable, right? Like people use horses and have dis- domesticated horses, and I'm sure you know hammering on shoes and wearing a saddle all the time is generally uncomfortable, but it's not torture. And in this case, they are torturing that tardigrade. And yeah, you're right. This this does call that whole animal rights thing to question. And then you put a guy like Lorca in charge who literally has specimens of animals from all over the place in his office, like a, like a freak show of a human. I mean, how much does that say? He's almost like Dr. Moreau. Yeah, and he's he's proud of it. He uses them as examples when he's talking that he just takes, he has a certain amount of, again, that accepted indifference. And then this is the same guy who, you know, stands out and looks out the window and talks about, oh, we're in a different universe. But, you know, it's interesting how you find the same people. Yeah. Like, it's just, there are these degrees of niceties within Starfleet that are kind of not, like, it's it's just not cool. And there are, again, I kind of remember and accept the fact that this is still, if you think about it relatively, it's not, Starfleet is not that old yet. And there are things that it has to learn and falter through and get better especially when you get to places like tng and ds9 they get a a bit better about talking about things like animal cruelty but uh, if you also think about going back to the nuclear argument i i do think the mycelium network is like the manhattan project in a lot of ways very secretive Lorca is also he's not ready to give out all the secrets he's, he does not want to talk about the fact that they're torturing a creature they, they he does not want to publicize the fact that a human is now basically give they're basically human there is ex, human experimentation on discovery to keep this thing going and uh, they they write around it because Lorca is such a good character and he can do it they they almost are like dismissive to all of it or they know it but they they find that it's a necessary step to get to a bigger goal but it's it's the argument of uh, i think people like dr culber and michael look at it as wanting to harness nuclear energy and people like Lorca want it to be nuclear weapons well yeah would someone harness it and others want to wield it 
Right. Right. And, that, and I think yeah. that that's an important distinction to make. But at the same time, I would say that the entire enterprise is corrupt if it's causing the type of damage that it's going to cause. Right. Like, remember, Ripper wasn't the wasn't the engine of the mycelial network for as long as Stamets himself. And if you think about about that, you know, it, it is that kind of he knows the damage it's doing, so he has to do it. He'll still do it. And it reminds me of the scientists and technicians who had to go into places like Chernobyl and Fukushima Daiichi. When those plants were going down, they knew this would cause, in some cases, irreparable harm. And I do not want to talk about the Netflix Chernobyl. It is it's written by the wrong people. So I'll just stop right there. <laughs> but anyways, um, the point here that I think is is really important is if you have something that increases your convenience, understand that it's going to come at a cost. And I think about Western society in general and how many conveniences we have that are ignored. Like Shashank, you grew up in Hyderabad, and I don't know if in your lifetime, you've walked past, ridden past, been in, been next to, and heaven forbid, worked in something like a sweatshop, right? Like, India has come a long way in in how it treats its workers. But it's not because India is treating its workers that way. It's because India was in an economic position where it couldn't pay its workers anymore. And that's still the case in Bangladesh. That's still the case in in parts of the Philippines, in Sri Lanka, um, you know, other parts of the world where we are exporting a lot of the, the, the pain that comes with the conveniences that we just sort of take as a given. It's, it's also not forgotten by discovery uh, that, you know, they're showing all of this with so many layers. I kind of, at the beginning, my, my opinion on the mycelium network progressed as the show went on, because at the beginning, it was the plot device. It was the thing that could do everything, right? Yeah. Like Lorca is like, let's go, and they're out. And Lorca is like, let's go here, they're out. And this, that just keeps happening. But I'm glad that they threw a curveball in there and said, yeah, we're going to let the creature lose because it's dying. Yeah. And we're going to take a human in and then we're going to see what happens. And horrible things happen because had Stamets not lost his, like completely lost himself to the network, maybe Culber wouldn't have died. You know, Culver yeah. would not have been in that position where Tyler gets him and kills him. So it's just there is, there is a lot of interesting things to mine from the network plot. I do think it was done better than the past with things like this when they, of course, I don't think anything will ever beat the Voyage, Voyage Home's environmental message. But I do think they did a, they did a pretty good job in Discovery in general yeah. with the Mycelia network. It's better than the galactic speed limit that was subsequently ignored the next episode over. <laughs> in yeah, the, the next episode, he's like going into warp and going everywhere. It's yeah, like, yeah. What, what just happened? And that's kind of the, again, not to knock on the older shows, but oh. this is something that you can do yeah. because you have a, a season wide story arc. Yeah. And you're not, you're not like, uh, you're not shackled by the, uh, the format of, an episode one, episode two, episode three independent story arc and just things like the Borg taking Picard carrying over. Yeah. Well, let me put it this way. Some of our listeners like us, like a sports team, I'm sure. And if you do, have you, has that sports team disappointed you during one of the games they've played? Has a player not quite been up to the standard that you would like them to be? Yeah, man. We, 
I'm still pretty mad about it. We just lost the World Cup semi-final, the Cricket World Cup. India India was doing great until the semi-final, and the semi-final we just completely bombed. And I'm I'm disappointed in every one of those players. Didn't they lose to Australia as well? They did. Yeah. Oh, Jamie, uh, Jamie McGregor. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, no, they uh, the semi-final they lost to New Zealand. Oh, okay. But close enough. Well, yeah, close yeah, enough. Was, whatever. Was pretty, Australia isn't real anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, you're right, and and so yeah, like for you to be upset with with the Indian cricket team, it doesn't mean you don't love them any less, and it doesn't mean you don't have your criticisms. And I think that's maybe where we would just want to say is if we're ever critical of Star Trek on this show, we're critical of it in a way one would be with a sports team that they love, um, because it is our f- source of entertainment, just like sports and. Ultimately, the larger conversations you can get into are generally meaningless to other people who aren't interested in that genre or medium. So, yeah, criticize away because we're in a safe place for that. And, you know, I I would like to think we love Star Trek in the way we love our dogs. Like, we won't stop loving Star Trek because it chewed through our cell phone while we were taking a nap. (laughs) Right? Uh, We'll still love it. We're just kind of confused and a bit angry. And we hope the dog would do better, but we cannot live without it. So that's kind of where we are with Star Trek. So I'm yeah. glad I'm glad we can talk about this. Now, I before we get into like, I know we've already went in for a little over an hour, but <laughs> our listeners enjoy long episodes anyway. This is going to be a long episode. So of course it's going to be. If you're done folding laundry, maybe vacuum. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not doing that, maybe go take a walk. A walk is always good. Just put us on in, a, in your headphones and yeah. walk your or dog. maybe take a, or your yeah, cat take a drive. Or- orangutan or whatever you've whatever animal you've got in your walk your walk your partner i don't know <laughs> anyway I have, a, I, have a, I have a bet do you think dan and bill are still listening or we've lost them we lost them at like minute one. Oh no no this this is uncharted territory this is this is uh <laughs> no if uh this is way beyond their attention spans thanks for the response thanks for keeping us on the network guys by the yeah, way yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly uh, before we get into like some of the minor discussions that might go a bit quicker i do want to get your opinion on and I kind of know parts of how we feel about this, so uh, I'm going to do my best to navigate. But one of the co- cooler places, in my opinion, that the mycelial network takes us to is the mirror universe. Now, tell me what you thought about the whole mirror universe arc and where we went with Lorca in general on the on season one. It was it was enjoyable. I really liked the action in it. I liked the intensity and urgency that that had. It was a very nice kind of mid-season kickstart jumper kind of thing. However, I do think that that it was rushed. I would have I would have liked to see the Mirror Universe maybe even get its own season. Um, if they're going to, especially if they're going to do thirteen to seventeen episode arcs, that's not unreasonable. I think that the way the Mirror Universe holds itself and the way our society is just in general and how we like kind of stimulation and stuff, I think we could handle a season of the Mirror Mirror Universe, but. I, I do I do think that it was rushed. I think that they, they really pushed through a lot of it very, very quickly. And that is probably where they leaned heaviest on nostalgia. And I have some issues with um, using nostalgia not as a tool, but as a crutch. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is probably the longest in a season that there was a Billiard Universe arc for, right? Absolutely. In, in all of Star Trek, and I would I would like to say that this is definitely the most cinematic looking in all of the middle universe that we've seen. I kind of think that goes for Discovery in general, but that's just 
like on par for the course in a lot of ways, right? Like I don't think people would have enjoyed if the show had the production value of TOS. They would they probably feel nostalgic, but it wouldn't have the same appeal and the 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 places that it went to. I'm sure we'll talk about like the show itself and where it is in culture and the the streaming of it all. But uh, I you'd agree that it's it's definitely the most cinematic. Oh, absolutely. It's cinematic. It's fun. It's engaging. It, it's very much like a ride. I, I really enjoyed that part of it. I kind of think, and this is difficult for me to say without having ample evidence to back it up, except for my opinion. But I think in the two seasons that we have seen so far, it is my favorite thing, the Mirror Universe arc. And I know that's not for everyone, but just as a historical fiction fan and someone who enjoys uh, that part of Star Trek, the mirrored universe side, because I think it's very much revealing. I know it's not strictly science fiction, but it's more fantasy, especially it has the elements of a lot of fantasies and it's it's definitely closer to home in the way it's structured because it's, it's uh, all empires and kings and queens and emperors and us versus them in this very, uh, 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 like this prim- primal, almost like our, like we went back a few centuries in in a weird way. So it's my favorite thing in the show. And it, that has to do with the fact that Gersha Phillips, the designer, just knocked it out of the park. I'm still a big fan of the Google brutalist architecture. Apparently that's what she wanted, to, wanted the show to feel like is brutalist architecture. Everything from the minutest of things like the way their pins look and their titles that they have, that rival Game of Thrones titles for for people, all the way to uh, just Keely and seeing Georgiou again and uh, the fact that <laughs> Michael eats uh, Kelpian. Yeah. <laughs> just there are so many really fun, entertaining... I was the most entertained and it's the one that I rewatched the most because... I kind of think that season two is in a weird way, not in a bad way, but just in a weird way. It's not the Discovery Cruise show anymore as much as it is Michael's and uh, Spock's and mainly Pike's season two in general. And uh, like season one, it's, uh, it's kind of a lot of people discovering themselves. But I think the, the one that could put its stamp so far on season one, say this is like really discovery, at least to me, where I, I got to know the characters a lot, is that Mirror Universe stuff. So I, ju- I just really enjoyed it, and I'm a big fan, and I really hope they go back. Again, for people listening, I know not everybody's a fan of comics, but the second comic arc that they did that you can find as a graphic novel is called Star Trek Discovery Succession, and it actually takes place. It's six issues, so you have like a good 150 pages of the Mirror Universe, and it takes place the second after that discovery switches and we kind of get back here and you actually find out what happens, what is the fallout of Giorgio leaving. And not a huge spoiler, but the, you find out that the mirror universe, Michael is still alive and she comes back and that that that's just like five, six issues of real juicy goodness. So I think people should check that out. Yeah, and I think, again, it, it, it shows kind of like, it's kind of like a, a look down the river for for us in the sense that we look at this utopian 
vision of the future where we have, you know, by uh, by Josh uh, Mufawad Paul, who who is on the show, says that you know, it, Star Trek is very much reminiscent of if the invisible hand is able to iron out all differences, um, and we could look at it from a socialist perspective that you know as we have become a, a no longer resource limited society, you know, kind of throw away, throws away the need for, for class and stuff like that. Yet we still sort of organize our, our military in recognizable ways. And I think that's just to help us, but it's this positive and, and hopeful and, and something to, it's a future to aspire to in a lot of cases. I think this also shows in a fun way, because we do like watching the card castle get kicked over. I mean, who would actually want to live in the mirror universe, right? It, and I said, I said earlier that Starfleet is clearly a place where a sociopath can still exist. And I mean, think of any bad moral that we've dealt with. I mean, in the mirror universe, it's it's that uh, sociopath's behavior is openly rewarded. I mean, at least where we are right now, it's still kind of quietly rewarded or quietly helped out. But in that respect, we. Yeah, we, we see basically if the sociopaths completely take over and what, what yeah, road and we're headed like down. He, there's a small but very telling moment where uh, Michael or Lorca, one of them says as they get into the mirror universe, they're like, you know, decency is a weakness here. You don't show decency. And it's also, again, the fact that we need to stop with these void puns, but I mean, I'm enjoying them, but it's the mirror universe, right? And it's interesting that in this universe... It's opposite day. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's the humans that are identifying with their culture and they want to destroy anything that is not them. And the Klingons have kind of accepted diversity and they they take their identities uh, as, as part of being one with all the other cultures. I also think that that the mirror universe for us as Star Trek fans gives us an extremely, extremely good litmus test or canary in the coal mine. Basically, look at an action that is happening politically somewhere in the world and say, would that be rewarded in the mirror universe? And if it is, you should oppose it. So what you're saying is it's uh, if, if in the mirror universe, it's rewarded that if we, we put people that don't look like us in cages. Maybe we shouldn't do that here. Right. Right, or or we pull we pull fathers uh, away from their their crying children, uh, yeah, th- that sort of stuff. If you know, if we if we corral people and we other them, and we're even capable, and it's funny how you know you're saying it's funny that Burnham eats eats Kel- Kelpian. I mean, I think they'd eat each other in the mirror universe quite easily as well. And I think there are certain elements of society that are exactly the same way. Yeah, and I don't think it's I don't think it's coincidental that Lorca at one point says, "Make the Empire glorious again." Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of bonk bonk on the head, but what's Star Trek with a little bit without a little bit of bonk bonk on the head, right? So yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I I do appreciate the mirror the mirror arc and that is important. Now those are the really big important things to me that I want to talk about. I really don't want to dominate all the conversation <laughs> topics. I know there are things that you want to talk about. Yeah. So tell me the, what what have we not touched upon yet that you really are talking about. I'd actually like to take us out of Star Trek. So yeah, the the big thing that I want to talk about or kind of address is the conditions that ended up kind of getting us to this point because as we meant as uh, as we've mentioned before you know we, we just get to watch trek and that's so wonderful but i mean really it what what streaming has done is it's given us the chance to consume niche markets uh niche niche franchises and stuff like that on platforms like Netflix and and all the rest and you know we delve into what we like cuz they sort of provide us with this this buffet of a series that you can really just watch a la carte, right? 
And those episodic shows are so great for that because, you know, every time the credits roll, it's kind of like the Etch-A-Sketch gets shaken and you get to start from scratch again. And that's sort of the, the glory of episodic television. So in regards to Star Trek itself, I think that's kind of what ended up getting us pumped, I guess you could say, or they've sort of primed the pump for us to get into Star Trek again, because other franchises have been reinvigorated, right? Like Lost in Space predates uh, a lot of a lot of the shows that we ended up getting sort of the reinvigoration, right? And it all kind of came from our desire to see Star Wars come back. And in that respect, it does sort of show what can happen when something is built up for an incredibly long period of time. And when it finally arrives, it doesn't quite always deliver to everybody. Now, I'm not saying that Discovery itself is the original, or sorry, the the episodes one, two, and three of Star Wars. I would say, however, um, some of the producing choices are reminiscent, and I think it has a lot to do with how things are made. And I would say that there was clearly uh, in CBS, a conversation that took place among shareholders, where they said, wow, look at these numbers coming out of, you know, Netflix, for instance, and, and stuff of people sort of casually watching Star Trek again. And it's not just your your dyed in the wool people like you, uh, or me, or uh, Ali or Thad, or, or, you know, other people who who collect and engage. Uh, in in Star Trek. And so you see other people being able to to take on this and and you know maybe it's a nostalgia for for parents or grandparents or friends or just you know uh, a time when you were a child and everything was a lot easier and don't worry space dad is on his way to save the day or or Captain Kirk is going to take you on one of his adventures and I think everyone was able to revisit all of that which then primes things for a shot first at the Kelvin universe which I think was also in the sort of same vein of how they put together uh, the the second Star Wars uh, trilogy. And then with Discovery's arrival, it is a TV show that plays like a movie. So I, I do think that this was marketed in a way that would get our attention. I would worry, though, because of the new streaming platform and how we consume our media, Star Trek Discovery doesn't lend itself as well to a la carte viewing much like tng or ds9 would be or tos especially um i think that star trek discovery ultimately plays that sort of breaking bad game of thrones thing where once you watch one you've got to watch the next one you've got to watch the next one and next one and then finally you know either over the course of a week or in some people's cases a day can get totally burned by this so it is sort of that ready-made consumable thing now we live in this world of inherited franchises through mergers, <clears throat> Disney, and are now trying to find ways to sort of monetize the nostalgic, the convenient, and lucrative shows, though um, first building through through building an audience, and then maybe withholding the product. And I think this is something we need to be very much aware of. And Star Trek is actually ahead of the curve a little bit, because it is on its own streaming platform, CBS All Access um, in the United States and Crave in Canada. Now, it is a part of Netflix in the rest of the world, but I do think this is a sign of things to come, where we're going to see a lot more of kind of like, I would say, the balkanization of media, where these huge conglomerates are going to balkanize their viewership in ways that I think 
help to sort of separate and individualize us a lot more in terms of our fandom. Now, individuality in our culture, at least in, in Western society, is considered a good thing, and I do think it has its good merits to it. But I do fear the idea that as niche markets become more and more niche, they do bleed into the mainstream, but they also kind of create these larger factions. And I think that is best typified by TV shows like The Big Bang Theory. I know there's a lot of people who like that show. I think it's a way to sort of cartoonize a lot of uh, social ills and dilemmas. Uh, Check out the pop culture detective on YouTube about this. But ultimately, I think that they've CBS and Paramount have been engaged in this dance um, over television winning over cinema what they've come up with is something that sort of works to that movie narrative that they were looking for. But I worry at the same time that by doing that, they pitted everything on black and now they're doing the exact same thing that the Marvel cinematic universe has done. They're doing a lot of what star Wars did. Um, They're going to cause some fatigue if they don't measure this out properly. And that would be the next stage in sort of streaming cultures. Everyone's going to get super tired of it. You know, the people who, who love star Trek discovery uncritically and who hate it uncritically, I think that's a problem. If you don't like star Trek discovery though, and you have principled arguments, I love principled debate. And like we said, it's like cheering for a sports team. You know, you could be really angry about um, a new player coming on. You could be angry about the way the jersey looks, right? Uh, A new coach, whatever. Those are things we can talk about. But uh, if you just hate something for the sake of it, that's not going to do us any good, especially in this conversation. So I do think that as a sign of its times, Trek has unfortunately been subjected to the treatment that every show and franchise gets when it emerges in this current um, sort of political paradigm. So that's kind of what I wanted to bring up. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this of, you know, it's that kind of chicken or the egg scenario of, you know, is Star Trek influencing right now or is it the influence? Because, I mean, of course, in a lot of cases, the 60s uh, TOS series, of course, is very much the influencer. And there have been times that TNG and Deep Space Nine have been influenced and also were influencing. I think in a lot of cases, there's a lot of internal influence with Star Trek Discovery, or sorry, a lot of internal influence with Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But would you say that Star Trek Discovery may be falling down some of the same pitfalls, or at least is at risk of falling down those same pitfalls that, say, the MCU or Game of Thrones uh, ended up falling into? So uh, I think there is a fundamental disagreement here between the both of us. Like, I, you've said a lot, yeah. and I'm going to do my best to uh, try to cover them all together. So just streaming services in general. Uh, I was saying channels earlier when you had a discussion with us, but... You know, to me, a millennial, uh, just I, I don't know what channels are anymore. Everything is just on streaming. I go from Netflix to Prime Video to CBS All Access to Hulu to HBO Go. And those are my channels. And I, if you think about uh, the, the culture and the way people are going, cable TV will definitely not be around. In, 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 I want to say at least... In, 30 years or so, there won't be such a thing as cable TV. It'll probably be like radio is today. It's just that it's there as more of a novelty than something that invades every home. And I think what channels are today, that is what streaming services will be at that time. And if you think about channels, not everybody watches CNN. 
not everybody watches like the Western movies channel. But they have enough of an audience that comes and watches that channel enough to keep it on air. And I think the the future is not competition, but it's coexistence. And it's, I will go to Netflix when I need to watch Stranger Things. I will go to the NBC app when I want to watch The Office. I will go to CBS All Access when I want to watch Star Trek. And if you think about it, the words are different. But I'm kind of saying, if I want to watch a Western movie, I'll go to watch the old Western movie channel. If I want the news, I'll go to CNN. You know, and I think that's just where culture is headed in general. And I don't see any other way that a Star Trek show would have been picked up that would have been on television and would have lasted and had the same impact that it does today as it would have in 87 when TNG came out or 66 when TOS came out. It's just the... The audience is just not there. Well, it has a blurring are- effect, right? It has it has that blurring effect to it. The more the more we add, right? In the '60s, there were what like six channels, kind of thing, right? Now we have a ton. And and just just to kind of address what you'd said there, really quick, if you think about it, yeah, you're right. And and you know the big networks, the big corporate groups who own these and will own these new streaming services, it will be, you know, you you pay for this, you pay for that, you pay for this. And it's much like cable packages and everything like that, that, you know, the the consumptive method of it all is not changing. But I would say that the nature of storytelling through media is changing because of the streaming service. And, you know, who's to say that that is not the future? I get that the way TUS defined things for the world. I don't think anything will ever do it since. I, I mean, as much honor and joy and entertainment that TNG gives us, TNG does not have a let that be your last battlefield episode. Or TNG does not have a the Voyage Home movie, you know, that really touches on these, that has left its mark on pop culture by saying something that somebody had never said before. TNG is so entertaining that it transcends pop culture, but it's not so transformative and says the things that TOS did, that it actually transcends pop culture the same way. So I don't think ever since TOS has something like that really happened. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, I just, uh, I I have realistic expectations from a franchise. Yeah, it's kind of like the big, it was the big bang of the, of the franchise. So you can't really say like anything before it, right? Like we could say, what's the most important element of our existence, well, it's the fact that we exist. So, yeah, you're right. That that is a good argument to make in the sense that if you say it's not as good as TOS, that's sort of a false economy that you're creating because no, nothing can be good as TOS because it was the first one and it was the one that hit you the hardest. And I think right. that 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 kind of thudding effect where we think that we can get that from a franchise 50 years into the future. I think that's important to understand because the reason why Discovery goes in the directions it does is because it is trying to discover itself within the Star Trek canon in and of itself, right? It it, it is it is a um it is trying to reinvent in a lot of cases. And I think that was the intention of the writers. Um I would say though some of the directions that they took, of course, are influenced by the fashion of media, right? Like, it's just like in the 1970s, you're going to see a ton more bell bottoms. And in the 1980s, you're going to see a lot more, uh, you know, 
uh, suits and ties and, uh, you know, that kind of 80s uh, Wall Street culture kind of thing like that, that sort of more scene or like the Miami Vice look. Uh, it is a fashion right now. And I, I worried, though, to some degree, much like in the 80s, as they made the 50s super fashionable that we are making the eighties really fashionable right now in a weird kind of way. But I think that I do have to give Star Trek discovery kudos for not trying to completely rehash. And it really took some risks uh, in that first season too. And people don't talk about this stuff, but like if you were, you know, everybody's like, Oh, hashtag STD and Oh, not my Star Trek or whatever. So what, what did just think about some things? What did TOS do? It had a really diverse cast. Well, Star Trek Discovery has that. And what did TOS do that a lot of people didn't do before? It put a gay, it put a black person in space. Discovery put a gay person in space. It put a bunch of gay people in space. I mean, they were already there. But yes, you're absolutely right. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, in general, they're in space and you're watching them from that threshold. Yeah. So there are there are things that Discovery is doing, and I mean I can like this is something you told me, and it's really fascinating. Like T- TOS did not escape the fashion of its time. Like remember how you told me that the fact that TOS was a color show was a marketing technique to sell color TVs. Oh yeah, no the the, the uniforms were in color as a direct connection to selling RCA TVs. And if you think about it, Discovery is kind of just going the same way. It is respecting the industry that is in. It's selling CBS All Access. That was yeah. its purpose. And that's I do think as as time goes on, we kind of will realize we were a little too hard on Discovery because they are doing the Marvel thing here uh, where they're trying to create pockets for everybody to come in. Like, I bet you there'll be a bunch of people who have never seen anything Star Trek that'll come to see a funny animated cat in Lower Decks. And it's like, that's the that's their thing. But that's a new market that they've tapped into. And they'll go, oh, wait, I mean, I'm, I'm on here. I might as well check this Discovery thing out. You know, yeah. and like you and I, we often talk about how our love for Star Trek was rediscovered when we saw Trek 09. And that would not have happened had Trek 09 not, not happened, even though it is in so many ways different from television Trek. I just I think like as I think the story of what the, the streaming services do and what Star Trek's place is here is not completely told yet. And I'm sure there's a lot there that still is yet to be discussed. Absolutely. And I think to sort of close this, uh, close this off is in, in, I've, I've heard that in the YouTube algorithms, if you upvote or downvote a video, that still goes into the algorithm of viewings. And I would say that the people who are just trying to, you know, you, you mentioned like the STD sort of thing, publicity is publicity is publicity. So, I mean, if that's the case, I guess like you're still getting people to talk about it. And the more you talk about it, the more people are going to do it. So I think we need to be more constructive in our criticism of TV in general right now and see the little hooks that stick out of the bait with it. I mean, Star Trek Discovery, much like the original series, if we're going to make those comparisons, you know, the original series definitely had a side on the Cold War, right? It's, um, you know, it, it, de- it depicts the, the, the Soviet threat as sort of divergent aliens, right? As the Romulans and the Klingons in a lot of cases. And they both sort of embody that Americanized perception of what the enemy looked like, right? What's the enemy this time, right? It's a fanatical 
quasi-religious imperialistic culture that's sort of steamrolling everything that it possibly can and it's it's a populist society right it's it's and it's a noble fight right it's the idea of of we need something noble to fight for and in our in this day and age since i would say vietnam it's been difficult to find the complete nobility in the fight the last great noble war quote unquote was the second world war and so with regard to that yeah, we, we can never allow Trek to divorce itself from the world that it's created within. But I think if we look at it more constructively, like we try to do here, and, and there are other shows, and I think a lot of the independent podcasts out here and the net and the, you know, the small independent networks that exist of just listeners who aren't making money off of it. Um, I think we're doing a great job of, of trying to um, extract that sort of more distilled, um, that, that more distilled, essence of of these new trek stories that are coming out because you do kind of have to filter out some of those um anachronisms that wouldn't really exist in the proper star society that we talk about so i think it's important that we talk constructively about star trek discovery and all of the other ones and we talk constructively about how our fandom or uh gets itself um a lot of my LGBT friends have been talking about this, and now they do come from a relatively leftist uh, position. So that definitely paints their um, their viewpoints. But I found it interesting how, you know, on Twitter, you see in the month of June, there was a lot of pride stuff happening. And it's wonderful to see And the Democratic Party in the United States really pushes pride. The Liberal Party up where I uh, live in Canada, you know, you see our Prime Minister walking in the pride parade. But they, they're saying these colleagues of mine are, are and comrades of mine are saying, you know, beware of rainbow capitalism it's not you know pride was a protest and it always was in the past and i think i think you know hearing them i agree with them that it should remain that way it needs to be an act of defiance what was star trek in a lot of cases and i'm not trying to say that star trek and the fight for for uh, lgbtq rights are identical to each other of course the fight for lgbtq rights was way more important but i think you know in its in its display and its ability to sort of push little tiny wedges in our cultural perceptions like they did in episodes like let that be your best last battlefield um or you know the first interracial kiss and stuff like that star trek has always managed to still get those little idealistic elements recently john and uh, ken from mission log hosted a roundtable about uh, is the utopian aspect of star trek passe i really recommend you guys listen to it it's uh, it's really important and i think it's important to us because i don't think it's passe if we don't want it to be passe i think season two was a was a massive reaction to season one and it shows that these these writers are listening to us and that also forces the 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 boardrooms and all of the shareholders to listen to us too because they want to make as much money off of us as they can and they're going to give us what they what we want um and if we want a vision of a better and more clear society where we we try to push away those things that divide us um we can ask for that and we can get that and I mean, if you're not going to participate in any other cultural phenomenon, you want to stick with something like this. I think that's a reasonable thing to uh, to ask for in this place we live in. All right. Since we've gone on for started discovery now for a while, I'm I'm glad we got most of our thoughts, and of course, we'd like enough time to do this for a day or two at least. But I just had a quick set of questions for you, man, and you can jump in with your answer, and then I'll answer mine. Sure. Uh, who's your favorite character from season one? Ashvoke. 
Nice. That's a that's a good choice for me. It's Takuma, but that's I'm kind of biased because I read the comic book and I know a little bit more about Takuma. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's me. What about what's your favorite scene from season one? Oh boy, there's a couple flashing around in my brain. It's a it, it literally it's all just like floating around in my head. All these different things. Are sure. Should I once. should I give you mine? Give me you yours. Give, mine? Yeah, give me yours. Okay. So I I also had a bunch, and like I said, I had time to think about it. So I think for me, though, uh, even though there are a lot of really good scenes, the best one is I Set a Star, which is the opening of the show, mm. and uh, where you find out they've been walking around the desert making a delta. Yeah, that was very good. For me, and it's, it is ridiculous that all of these other characters didn't make it into this, and especially, uh, it would be Saru's speech, definitely, because he sort of actually kind of gets a first sort of proto speech to what Burnham says at the end. And I would actually say that his is a lot more reminiscent of Takuvma's as a, um, as a foil to what he was saying. Whereas I think her speech in the end is kind of an actualization. Uh, I would say, yeah, the Saru speech is, is powerful. It's uplifting. And Doug Jones is a force of nature and I can't wait to give him a hug in a week and of course we definitely did not get it get a chance to talk about just kelpians and saru in general as much as we'd like to we didn't get to talk about mud as much as we'd like to guide that like to talk about just the empire in general i'm sure there'll be there'll be times and places where we can talk about all these oh probably uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but hey uh i think this is our last episode that at least gets out before we do the whole STLV craziness where I'm really excited to do a bunch of things. But what's your boldest prediction about STLV? What do you think is the craziest thing that can happen? Then? Oh, man. Um, there will be a transporter accident and your and my brains will be switched. That's great. I've uh, it'll, it'll be fun for me to enjoy the Western world as a white person. Yeah. Least mentally. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I can, I can, I can get uh, a different, a different look on things. Uh, yeah. Okay, but uh, to to narrow that question a little, what do you, what do you think is the? Do you think we'll get any reveals? Do you think oh. we'll find out? Do we'll find out something like last year when Patrick Stewart just casually walked on stage and announced, "Oh yeah, Picard's coming back." I don't know, man, because I don't want to actually like. Okay, so I'm hosting Picard live, and I know I've got to like tweet out all the stuff that's happening and everything, but I'm reluctant to like read anything I tweet out, mainly because like. I don't want any more information. I want to go in with the premise that, that I understand now. And I think that's, that's all I particularly need. Um, I don't think there's going to be necessarily any gigantic reveals this time around. I mean, there might be some more information on section 31. Um, I don't know. I, I definitely am going to keep my ear open. And I think we need to create like sort of like a system of communication. If Alex Kurtzman decides to just waltz on stage and <laughs> at, at the main stage and wherever we may be, we've just got to drop everything and run because he might have another bomb to drop on us. So I don't, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not going to get my hopes up for a big, big reveal this year, but I, I like surprises. What about you? I think Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, is go- they're going to be there. That's been announced. I think Rebecca Romain would be a surprise. And I think they'll announce the bike show. I think they'll do it this time. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet it's, it's going to be called, uh, I don't know if it'll be called Star Trek Pike, because they're already doing Star Trek Picard. But they'll probably do something in Enterprise, like the early years, or Enterprise these, like the this whatever number of years mission. Before the accident. Uh 
And it's just, I, th- I think it'll be, I think they'll announce it. I mean, I, I, if, if they're going to do it, this is the time to do it. So yeah. that's going to be my craziest thing. If I was really dreaming, I think they would announce the Quentin Tarantino movie or whatever Star Trek 4 is going to be. And they'll say, oh yeah, it's happening. Yeah. But I, that's, that's me dreaming. But hey, uh, for those of you listening who are going to be at STLV, please find us. Say hi. If you find the Trek Geeks guys, they'll tell you where we are because they're kind of like our teachers and we're on a school trip. So they'll be, uh, if you don't... If you not, neither of those men are my teachers. I would not trust them to chaperone uh, a, a tank of lobsters. So no. Um, <laughs> if you see where Dan and Bill are, just go to the other side of the convention and you'll find Shashank and me. And uh, speaking of track geeks, they're, they're doing all sorts of crazy things up there, those two. And uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I, I understand that you finally had a lifelong dream fulfilled and got to be on a track geeks episode recently. That was, well, I don't know. They say that uh, it's good to have dreams, but sometimes when you get it, it's uh, there's that sort of fleeting feeling about the whole thing. No, I, I really enjoyed it. It was really cool to get to be uh, just on there. And of course, Shashank and I will be hosting the 200th episode of Trek Geeks when it comes out. And Shashank, myself... Bill and Dan, we are all going to be recording a collaboration that we've had in the works. It'll be Friday morning that we're going to do the recording. And uh, yeah, it's it's looking like uh, we're going to be talking about the big thing. If, uh, if humankind, like all societies, if we're actually ready for real first contact. And it'll be a fun episode. Trek Geeks is an awesome network. This is our first episode with them. We joke around a lot, but we are very, very honored and grateful to be here. And this was our dream network. And we cannot wait to do as many of these. I'm, I imagine if, like eight years from now, our teeth will fall off and they'll have found a way to artificially keep us all alive. And Barry and I will still be doing episodes. Well, our heads will be in gefilte fish jars, just like in Futurama. <laughs> and, uh, but all that to say, if you're a dusty every, please come by and say hi, say namaste. We will take a picture. We will shout you out on Twitter. And if you're not, we promise to party twice as hard for you. Yeah. You can live vicarious through us. We promise. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to do a little bit of, uh, like a little bit of, uh, what do they, what do the kids call it? Like the stuff that comes with the job, like. Make sure you check out trekgeeks.com. Uh, make sure you check out our page on trekgeeks.com. There's a really cool picture on there now with our background in it. And uh, this is, since it's our first episode with them, we'd like to tell you that nothing will really be different. We'll just be a little more crazier, which I don't know if that's what you're in for. If you're, if you're into that, that'll be awesome. But if not, enjoy other shows on the Trek Geeks Network. There are other things that are in the works. Like Barry mentioned, he's going to be doing a Picard Live when Picard comes out. Uh, there's, of course, uh, the main Trek Geeks show. There are other shows that are in the works. So there's just a lot of exciting stuff there. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely check out the entire network. It's loads of fun. So I think with that, we'll uh, bid you adieu. Shashank and I are going to get back to our jippers on the beach and uh, live long and prosper. And make sure you follow us on Twitter on at Polytrex, P-O-L-I-R-E-K-S. And with that, live long and prosper. And onward to Star Society. Polytrex is a production of Coconut Media Works. Executive producers Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the other members of the Trek Geeks podcast network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and trekgeeks.com. 